with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, the IMF upgrades its global growth forecast for this year to 3.1 percent. What's the current situation of the global economy? And China urges breakthroughs in GPUs, robotics, and quantum computing to drive the future industries. And now let's begin with our top story. The International Monetary Fund has revised its outlook for the global economy this year. It now predicts global growth will hit 3.1 percent in the year 2024. That's up slightly from its October forecast. This revision reflects greater confidence in China's fiscal measures and resilience in the United States and several large emerging economies. The fund lifted China's 2024 economic growth outlook to 4.6 percent. Up from its previous estimate of 4.2 percent, it also forecasts growth for the U.S. this year at 2.1 percent and 0.9 percent in both the eurozone and Japan. So, what's the current situation of the global economy, and what are some of the main challenges lying ahead? For more on this, join us on the line now, Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and Yan Liang, professor of economics, Vilmet University, and also Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. So, yeah, I will start with you. The IMF actually upgrades its global growth for. Forecast for this year to 3.1 percent. So, how do you see this economic outlook, and how does it compare to the previous forecasts? Good to talk to you, Zhao Yang. So, I think reason that they upgraded the forecast was due to the greater, the、uh, better than expected resilience、uh, in some of the bigger markets, like you said, United States and some of the emerging markets,、um, especially China, India, and Russia. Um, so these countries are doing quite well, and so they elevated the growth forecast. But I think、um, let's not forget, you know, this is still below the historical average、uh, before the pandemic, which is about three point eight percent per year. So this is still, you know, better improvements, but it's still not yet re- recover, you know, to the pre-pandemic level.、Um, so there are some upsides, I think,、uh, factors、um, because of the faster disinflation. So it's possible that we're going to start to see easing of monetary stance of、uh, major economies.、Um, we have also had a really loose. Sort of fiscal policies, especially in the United States, you know, running seven percent to deficit to GDP ratio, so that is a great boost to the economy, and that's why the U.S. economy, you know, grow grew at two point five percent last year, and so it's it's forecasted to continue to grow at two point one percent this year.、Um, that said, I think you know there's definitely other downside factors.、Um, you know, for example, the volatile commodity prices due to geopolitical shocks. Um, the possible supply chain disruptions, and also even inflation. I think you know even the IMF themselves、um, have different、uh, arguments about it.、Um, the、mm. chief economists say basically we can declare、um, you know a win、uh, against you know fighting inflation, and yet we're hearing you know the deputy manager director saying that you know we we, we should not be too content about. 
um, inflation just yet. We still need to see, you know, the wage growth data. We still need to see the service sector inflation. So I think the picture is still pretty mixed. We're not really out of the woods yet, um, especially we're seeing a lot of divergencies as well um, among, you know, some of the economies. Mm. So Aina, so what's your observation? Could you elaborate more on the factors influencing the uh, global economy this year? Well, I mean, there, there's a number of things. I agree uh, completely. Yun gave a very good uh, synopsis. Uh, I would also look at, you know, they said global headline inflation is expected to fall to 5.8%. Well, falling to 5.8% when you have growth of 3.1% globally, not good. Um, when you start talking about the United States at 2.1, Europe at 0.9, um, you're, you're starting to see a pattern here where inflation uh, continues to be fairly high in excess of growth and the developed economies are the ones who are lagging the world. And remember 20 years ago, it was always the developed countries who were leading the world and lecturing everybody else about how they should be growing uh, faster. Uh, and today, uh, it's you, you see a continued pattern uh, where they're lagging uh, global averages and things like that. Um, I, I do really think that uh, there's a lot of inequality that was not addressed in the IMF uh, report. 60% of, of Americans are in real financial distress. You know, people say, look, you know, uh, everyone tells me everything's okay, but you know, I can't feed my family. I can't pay my rent. I, I've defaulted on my on my loans and things like this. So there's there are things in there. And then we start getting into all the other issues that, um, you know, that we don't know about mm -hmm. uh, climate change. I mean, last year was the hottest year on record. Um, if it's hot again, you're going to see a, a lot of energy building up in the oceans, and that results in you know these massive storms, which uh, are, are real. They they wipe out people and a lot of property. You have conflict uh, continuing. Uh, Ukraine, uh, also um, you know Gaza. That is no no sense of either one of these stopping. Uh, perhaps stalemates at best, but that is going to have a, a real uh, effect. And as long as Gaza is in play, there's going to be increased hostilities and uh, unknowns uh, around areas like the Red Sea and other choke points uh, that are disrupting logistics. Um, competition, uh, the U.S. Just keeps insisting that it has this uh, policy of uh, small yards, high fences, where it wants to keep, play keep away from China. China is uh, progressing. But none of this serves the world. So th there are a lot of uh, issues out there, um, the things that we know about in terms of inequality and um, you know, inflationary factors and lagging developed countries, and then the unknowns. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Joe, so how do you describe the current situation of the global economy? Yes, we know that at, maybe at the beginning of this year, people are a little bit more optimistic about the future, about what is going on in the coming year. But I would like to see that uh, uh, maybe IMF is just trying to give us more confidence because the confidence is very important for people to have a better understanding and about the future and trying to working hard. So actually, our, uh, as we have discussed, there are so, so many factors that are uh, have making the, the situation a little bit more different compared with last year and uh, what's more I would like to end some of the elements like for the technology development we are seeing that technology is shaping the world which is not only benefits the science but also benefits the businesses so when the international trade and investment are changing its pattern with the global supply chains changed 
I, I would like to say that there are more possibilities, maybe cooperation between the uh, developing countries will be uh, improved and strengthened. And that will provide a little bit different scenarios compared with the past years, because we in the past, maybe a lot of uh, trend are led by the developed countries. They said what is going on and the developing country will follow them. But mm -hmm. now we are doing something different. We are trying to make decisions based on our own consideration and cooperation. That would be another point that we have to meet this year. Mm -hmm. So, Aina, so what do you expect for the inflation trajectory, you know, for this year? Uh, what will the uh, major central banks like the U.S. Federal Reserve, the ECB, and the Bank of England do to respond? Actually, the Federal Reserve holds the uh, interest rate steady, but this steady is at their highest level in two decades, and it's not quite ready to cut them. So how do you expect that. Well, I mean, quite frankly, the U.S. and Europe uh, and Great Britain all suffer from the same um, problem, and that is that they have this wage side inflation that is unconnected to productivity. So when you start paying people more uh, for doing the exactly the same thing and producing the same amount, uh, that's inflationary. And unfortunately, um, these central banks keep talking about trying to depress the economy, but you're not going to get you know, uh, people to take less. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. You see strikes going on in all of these countries. Uh, look at France, you know, the farmers have lined up their tractors, they've brought uh, Paris to a standstill. Uh, in England, they're having transportation and doctor strikes. They're all saying, we want more. Uh, but the problem is you give them more, there's no more productivity and all of a sudden you have more inflation. So these central banks will uh, continue um, to focus on inflation, which I think is the, the wrong side of this. They, they need to bring their economies uh, into some sort of competitive norm so they can be, uh, you know, they can be competitive worldwide. I mean, look at Germany. Um, they're rapidly deindustrializing because of cost of energy and also labor are so far beyond uh, the norm that they cannot uh, be based in Germany and continue to compete. And this is something that is going to happen, uh, that is happening uh, worldwide. The U.S. Uh, and, and Great Britain, they're always talking about reshoring and friendshoring and all this nonsense. The fact is that's another inflationary factor. So it doesn't look good um, for the inflationary side. And that means that these central banks will content, continue to have this knee-jerk reaction that somehow they can control uh, the economic future by raising and lowering rates. Um, at some point, uh, politically, uh, there will be a lot of pressure uh, to reduce rates, to get the economies uh, up and going again, uh, but it's very difficult. And then you, you, know, you start looking at you know, uh, employment. They keep saying, oh, there's lots of jobs. Yes, if you want to deliver pizza, but you know, in four months alone, they lost 25,000 highly paid jobs in the tech sector. And there's more to come as these companies slash payrolls. This is going to have an effect because these are um, you know, people who had high levels of discretionary income. You take that away and they're going to be struggling just to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. And yeah, actually, another downside risk cited by the IMF and you also earlier mentioned include the commodity price hikes caused by the geopolitical shocks and uh, the global supply chain disruption. So how do you think they can impact on the global economy as a whole? 
Uh, so I think that it's an inflationary uh, question. Um, so I think Aina gets it right that, you know, the central banks are hiking interest rate and trying to fight, you know, wage-led uh, sort of inflation. It's basically shooting on the wrong foot. Um, because what we observed uh, in the United States and other countries is that, you know, the inflation really started with supply chain disruptions due to COVID and then due to the more kind of, uh, you know, geopolitical tensions. And so all of these created the supply shocks and that created inflation. So when you look at the United States right now, yes, the interest rate is 20 year high, but they're still having pretty low unemployment rate of 3.9%, which is historically low. And yet you start to see inflation start to come down because, you know, the supply side has normalized uh, after the pandemic and after, you know, the global supply chain start to recover. So I think, you know, the way that they are trying to raise the uh, interest rate to hike in, to uh, fight inflation is really not helping um, in, in, in the sense of the economy, because when you think about it, uh, you raise interest rates so high and the Federal Reserve is, uh, is, is getting, the federal government is paying over $600 billion interest payments to the private sector. And that really adds to the consumption, that really adds, you know, to the demand side. That said, I agree with Aina um, earlier point that, you know, a lot of these people are getting this money is because they are already rich, right? They have enough investments in treasuries and they're getting all these interest payments. And yet the poor is deeply in debt and they're buying um, on credits. And so that eventually is going to drag down the economy. So when it comes to the commodity prices, as we know, you know, the Red Sea uh, is uh, being attacked, the ships going through it. And so that adds to, you know, the transportation costs, the fuel costs, the crew costs, the insurance costs, and all this could add up to, uh, you know, increase the cost of production. And also um, it could cause the supply chain, uh, international supply chain disruptions. Mm. So these are not going to be conducive um, to, you know, keeping costs and prices low, not to mention um, if these kinds of conflicts get even spread it right now that we have also um, incidents in Jordan that, you know, it's very likely this kinds of um, geopolitical and armed conflict could spread. And so I think that could definitely add to the commodity uh, price volatility. Um, there are many other issues. I think, you know, the United States oil rain was also decreased. The LNG is being paused. Uh, export has been uh, uh, paused. Um, and also we have the OPEC countries are not clear about, you know, what they're going to do in terms of the oil supply. So all of these, I think, would add to, you know, the, the oil price um, and other commodity price volatility. So mm -hmm. that could be, you know, again, uh, uh, interrupting uh, the cost of production, the supply chain, and that could add to inflation and some other economic ills. Mm. And so, Dr. Joe, the IMF also repeated his warning about the possible uh, fragmentation of global trade. So how do you see these implications for the global economy as a whole? We know that trade is very important for the different countries and the regions to cooperate with each other to exchange what they are able to produce. So for the global trade, it has been uh, very important in the past decades to connect the different countries and to make the people to getting a better income, not only from its own market. So if we are not able to provide the sustainable development of the trade, maybe the countries 
can also depend on themselves. And, and that is definitely not good because a lot of countries, especially some of the small island countries like New Zealand, like Singapore, they cannot make everything. So they have to depend a lot on the other countries. So even for the big countries, I, I mean, some of the countries have to depend on the crude oils, on some of the irons, oils, or other kind of materials coming from other countries. Well, that is, it is also important for the car makings and the textiles. So without a trade, uh, sustainabilities. I would say that uh, the, the companies, the factories cannot make a right decisions on buying some of the stocks and trying to prepare for the further uh, sales. So uh, I would say that trade is really important. But now we are seeing some of the disruption from the global supply chains based on some of the decisions of the developed economies. And that is uh, a really bad signal to be sent to other companies mm. or other trees. They have to think about that. Mm. And Dr. Zhou, so under such kind of global background, what do you think is China's role in the current global economy? China is uh, the biggest uh, international trade, I mean, for the trading goods country in the world. So we are providing so many connections with so many countries. So we are providing their what they need for the materials, for the semi-products, and even for the final consumption products. And we are becoming our even more important countries for the imports. We're providing many opportunities for other countries, exports, like agricultural products. So if we can do better to have a better attractions by connecting with these these countries, I think it's uh, really an important way for us to deal with uh, global supply chain issues. And it is also to do something about the update of the global uh, industrial chains. And that is uh, also many countries who want to update their position in the global value chains. So for these three chains, China are playing, uh, all of them are important roles in the, in the better understanding and uh, trying to improve the usage of the resources of all the countries. Mm. And yeah, so the IMF expects the Asian economies to grow by 5.2% this year, and Asia will continue to account for the bulk of the global growth. So how do you view the situation in this region? Right, so the Asian economy has always been very vibrant, and I think they really have the goods of the two worlds. On the one hand, you know, the regional economies has been really integrated. Um, very recently, they have signed, you know, the RCEP agreements with the ASEAN countries and China. Um, this is going to really help to boost regional trade and regional division of labor and trying to, you know, achieve the scale economy and also innovation driven economy. And on the other hand, unlike the EU countries, um, these these uh, Asian economies also have their own policy autonomy. So they're able to use fiscal support, support or monetary policy that really uh, cater for their domestic needs. And that are really helpful uh, for them to stimulate their economies. And going back to the question about, you know, the fermentation, I think, you know, the success of the regional economy in Asia is a good uh, testament to the importance of, you know, integrations, not only in trade, but also in investment and in also technological uh, cooperation and so on and so forth. Um, so the IMF has estimated if we really have this kinds of block, uh, you know, between, you know, US, EU and, and China on the other side, 
then we're likely to see that this fermentation is going to reduce the global GDP uh, from 2.5% of the global GDP to 7%. Mm-hmm. So the highest you know, that we're look- looking at is not only trade fermentation, but also investment uh, fermentation and technological fermentation. And that is going to knock out you know, 7% of the global GDP. And that amounts to, to put in perspective, um, the Japanese economy and German economy combined. So I think a lot is at stake. Uh, this kind of block confrontation is not good for geopolitical stability, but it's also not good um, for economic, uh, for, for the global economy. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamette University, Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, China urges breakthroughs in GPUs, robotics, and quantum computing to drive the future industries. Stay with us. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You're listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China says it will support technological innovation, industrial cultivation, and the safety governance of the future industries. The country is building incubators and pilot zones for future industries, opening by the year 2025, and expects breakthroughs in about 100 cutting-edge technologies. So first, uh, uh, Aina, tell us more about this uh, industries in future. They actually include, you know, the metaverse, the uh, robotics, and the quantum computing. Why are they important, and what can they do to improve the efficiency and productivity? Well, it comes down to what you just said, efficiency. Um, and these, uh, all these technologies are uh, allowing factories uh, to manage their, uh, the inflow of goods, the outflow of finished goods, uh, their factory production. And then uh, the big one going forward is going to be reducing the cost of transactions. Uh, if you start thinking about how much time is wasted between, you know, uh, people trying to find each other and then uh, lawyers and banks, uh, transaction of funds, etc. Uh, if you can reduce that, that actually is a productivity gain. And China is at the forefront of this. So when you start hearing about all these technologies, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but understand that they are, in fact, together changing things. Remember, we've done this many times before. Uh, the information revolution, the industrial revolution. Uh, these are all things where people at the time predicted uh, this is the end of the world. Nothing's going to work. In fact, it worked better. Um, this ability to produce efficiently has really been the deciding factor in how economies and uh, people have had uh, been able to have more choices. Mm-hmm. And so, Dr. Joe, how do you explain or make of this uh, industries? Why the government pay much attention to it? 
Yeah, we know that the world is changing too fast and everybody is looking about the future. The future means uncertainty, means possibilities and hope. So, I, I mean, the Chinese government is trying to make better use of its uh, industrial abilities and also the market abilities, trying to think about what we can do to help to make a better, you know, preparation for the challenges in the future. Maybe the future is coming because if you are looking at the guidelines, it's uh, only mm. making our very short you know, arrangement like for the one year and uh, the three years separately. So I would say that uh, China is trying to to think about what kind of technology and also the systematic ways for us to cooperate with the challenges and prepare for the uncertainties. Maybe it's not only a solution for our own economy, but also for the cooperation between other countries and China. We are not trying to aiming to provide a better better place for the Chinese companies to develop, but also to provide a very wide range of areas and the possibilities for the companies from other countries to come here to benefit from China's development about the technology, about the market, about the expectation. So I believe that is a really nice kind of scenarios and we can try to cooperate with other countries to have a better you know, development by the cooperation. Mm. And Yan, so how would you assess China's innovation capability and what's the government's role, what's the enterprise's role to improve this innovation capability? Right, I think that's a great question. Um, I think according to some of the industry and also think tech estimates, for example, one um, out of the Australia think tank, uh, which puts China uh, as, you know, in the leading position in 33 uh, critical technologies out of 47. So, you know, in other words, China is really paying, uh, is really playing a lead role in the great majority of the cutting edge and critical technologies. Um, so earlier you asked about, you know, why are these industries? I think what really rules the future, one is energy and second is computing powers. So you would need to have, you know, larger amounts of computing powers um, in the sense, you know, you need the large GPUs, you need the cloud computing to be able to process large amount of data to drive AI. You also need robotics uh, because, you know, as we talked about, China is an aging society. So we do need to have more automation. We need more robotics um, to be able to boost uh, efficiency and productivity. And I agree with Aina. I think, you know, one of the things that people worried about um, as the, the IMF has warned, uh, Gopinath talked about, you know, AI is going to affect 40% of the jobs in the next decade. So how do we prepare ourselves for that? I think really we need to have the regulations, we need to have the governance, we need to have the multilateral system uh, to be able to make sure that AI is really working for the benefits you know, uh, of the, of the uh, humankind instead of you know, working against it and just for the interest of a small segment um, of the special interests. Um, now, in terms of the role of the government, I think it's super important. I think the Chinese government has this really strategic ver- vision that, you know, China is going to continue to increase R&D spending. Uh, right now, China spends about 2.55% of GDP on R&D. A lot of basic research and development is done uh, with the public support, with the government direct, I think, investments. And then on the other hand, we have very entrepreneurial, you know, enterprises. They're really commercialized. And, in, uh, and put a lot of these inventions into commercial uses. So when you think about you know, AIs, when you think about you know, quantum computing, the question is how do we put this in consumer uh, industries and also in manufacturing industries to really improve efficiency and really bring the real benefits uh, to consumers. So I think it really takes both the government and the enterprises and also um, consumers, because uh, we need a big market, we need a big demand um, for a lot, a, a lot of these commercial uh, commercial uses of innovations. 
So mm. I think it takes all societies um, to strive for innovations and commercializations of these innovations um, to really reap the benefits. Um, of technological uh, developments. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University, Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.